hardworking drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hi there, everyone. This is Zach Albetta, and you're listening to the podcast Working Drummer. My interview today is with Giuliano Mingucci, who is a good friend of mine from the years I spent in Kansas City, Missouri. He is the drummer for two of Kansas City's most beloved bands, the Barkley Martin Ensemble and David George and a Crooked Mile. Giuliano, or G, as he's known around town, uh, is a great drummer, but also a great audio engineer, and he offers a unique perspective on both of those things and talks about what drummers can do to improve their sound quality, whether playing live or in the studio. Last week, uh, Matthew Krause did a great interview with producer Jim Riley, who had some really good insight into drum sounds and recording, and I think Giuliano's points will go nicely uh, along with what Jim had to say. He also discusses how his rock and pop drumming has been infused with his Brazilian heritage and the jazz of his hometown KC, and how he's found a work-life balance between music and everything else. So here we go. Let's talk with G. My mom was born and raised in Brazil. Her whole family lives there. My dad was born and raised in Kansas City. His whole family lives here. Mm -hmm. Uh, My dad lived in Brazil for about 15 years. Met my mom, got married. They had me. I was born in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and moved to the U.S. when I was two and a half and have lived here since. So you you are of Brazilian descent, and you grew up and live in a jazz town. But you are not a jazz drummer. You are not a Brazilian or Latin drummer. Um, how did you How did you manage to sort of avoid both of those and, and cut your path as a as a rock pop drummer? Um, I like to hit drums hard. <laughs> That's the short answer. Uh, I like to lay into the drums. Mm-hmm. I like a fat backbeat. Um, and I really love playing songs that people know. Mm-hmm. I like playing songs that people can dance to, but can also sing along to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was a lot of my motivation for wanting to play kind of pop rock music. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I thrive off of attention, <laughs> as most musicians do. Yeah. And I found, um, through a little bit of trial and error, that if I played pop and rock gigs, more people showed up (laughs) than if I tried to play jazz or Latin or something like that. Right. I understand and really appreciate the artistic input that it takes to play those genres, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't my primary motivation for playing drums. Right. It was to have fun. Right. Um, more than to be an artist, yeah. at least in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how do you feel, uh, even even though you don't play Brazilian music or jazz music, I know that you listen to a ton of both of those kinds of music. Yeah. Um, so how have those styles and, and that kind of drumming influenced your drumming? Um. It's happened in a few different ways. Um, I do like playing those genres. Um, more than playing, though, I like listening to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think anytime y- you listen to something 
beyond what you play on a regular basis, it makes you a better musician. Mm-hmm. Um, and having dabbled in those genres, it offers me a different type of sensitivity, mm-hmm. a different touch on the instrument, um, a different type of improvisation, a different level of interaction yeah. that even when you're playing pop or rock music, if you can bring any of those elements into the music, it makes you a better player. Anytime you're listening to what's going on around you and you're interacting with it, even when you're just laying down a backbeat mm-hmm. and very little else, it still makes you a more musical player. Yeah. So I think all those things contribute to that. And it, it sounds like you're talking about even even if you're playing something like a repetitive static beat, if you can still sort of experience the music and interact with it in real time the way you do in, in jazz or in Brazilian music, that adds a level of sensitivity to any kind of music. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that even within rock and pop music, there are still solos yeah, that yeah. happen. Um, and being able to interact with those solos, even within the format of a rock tune, um, still makes that part of the song more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't have to go out and start trading fours with a guitar player on a rock tune, but if you can lend them a little bit of interactivity while they're playing, it's going to make everything more interesting. Mm-hmm. So you attended the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and you got a degree in audio engineering. Correct. Why did you pursue uh, the the technical side of music rather than performance in, in college? Um, there were a few different reasons. First... I would have to credit my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, while they've always been massively supportive of me undertaking any artistic endeavor, and music in particular, um, you know, even growing up, they forced me to take various music lessons, mm-hmm. and they were highly involved in me becoming a musician. When I started approaching college, um, their very strong recommendation was do something that involves music, but that could give you another option if the whole professional musician thing doesn't pan out because Mm -hmm. they were realistic that it's a hard living to make. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was the first reason. And the second was that I've always sort of had a natural propensity towards technical things, um, both mechanic and electronic. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to do something that merged music and computers and I was in college at the right time that digital recording was starting to become the norm. Yeah. What year did you start college? Uh, 2001. Okay, yeah. Well, fall of 2000, really. Right. I, yeah. Right, it was right in there. Um, so I actually did my first year in college as a computer science major, and I hated it. <laughs> I was awful at it. It didn't interest me. Yeah. I got bad grades. And then a year into college... Um, I happened to find the right advisor that said, hey, I think this might be the route you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And they were totally right. And Mm -hmm. I got set up with the audio engineering program. And from there, it was tons of fun. And I loved learning and being in the studio and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So um, how and when did you sort of uh, make your entrance into the professional performing scene in Kansas City? Um. It actually started when I was about 15, mm-hmm. um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 or 16. I got hooked up with a band called Slanted Plant. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I met Rick Willoughby, who was a bass player, and he had already been playing with two other guys, Jeff Veets and Brian Isbell, and they needed a drummer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I happened to be fortunate in that I was the youngest one in the band, and particularly the older guys had been doing this for quite a while, and they already knew what it took to be a professional gigging band. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at 16, I was already, you know, missing occasional days of school to go play gigs out of town. I was making money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a really easy way to get hooked yeah. at a young age. <laughs> what I didn't realize at the time was how good I had it. Yeah. Because I didn't realize that it took more than just showing up for band practice and a gig to get to tour right. and get to play with awesome bands and, um, you know, have a thousand people in the crowd, right. which is what I was, ex- my first band experience. Right. I-, I was like, Oh my God, if this is what it is all the time, I'm never quitting. Right. But ev- everybody else was doing that legwork while you were in high school. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I got really lucky in that regard and it wasn't until later that I realized how much work it really took mm-hmm. to make those wheels turn on a regular basis. One of the gigs you did that, that uh, we really wanted to hit on was your stint as the, the house drummer at Bar Natasha. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. So Bar Natasha was a cabaret club mm-hmm. um, that anybody who worked there, whether you were a bartender a busboy, a waiter, waitress, server, etc., manager, you had to be a musical performer. Mm-hmm. And so on Friday and Saturday nights every week, they would have what they called a cabaret, um, cabaret show. Typically, the early show was one person curating a two-hour set of music. Wow. And then the late show would be every person in the bar would come up and do a tune or two (laughs) until the place closed down. Oh, my God. So the house band would consist of at least a piano player who was also sort of the musical director and a drummer. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they would add a bass player. But um, so Danny Rojas, another great drummer in Kansas City, and I sort of split duty on this gig for a while. Mm-hmm. Anytime he couldn't be there, I would play and vice versa. So what would happen was I would play with anywhere from five to ten different vocalists every Friday and Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And there would never be a rehearsal for me. Right. The piano player and the vocalists would rehearse. But I would show up on Friday, set up a kit, and go. <laughs> And they would walk up on stage and say, this is the song we're going to play. And if I knew it, great. And if I didn't, we're playing it anyway. (laughs) And so that did a couple of really important things for me as a musician. One, it forced me to quickly expand my catalog of music that I knew. Because I would start after a month or two of doing this, I would be like, okay, well, they consistently keep coming back to this tune and this tune and this tune and this tune, which I'd never heard before. So I should probably learn how those songs go. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing it did was it forced me to watch a musical conductor on stage who didn't have a free hand. Mm -hmm. So to learn those subtle cues of head nods and eye glances and learn what those things mean when people give them to you. Right. 
uh, in order to follow the piano player right. because he was really the only one who truly knew what was going on <laughs> on stage. Uh, and the other thing was it made me completely fearless to play anything in front of a crowd. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I didn't realize how important it was until a couple years later. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started playing with other bands that I didn't get a chance to rehearse with, um, you know, basically I could sit in with any band that would play stuff that was even relatively close to my wheelhouse. Right. As far as genre is concerned and never be afraid of what song they wanted to play. Right. And I'd just say, you want to play that song? Let's play that song. (laughs) And that served me really well for a long time. Was there ever, was, was there ever like a train wreck moment? At Bar Natasha, did somebody want to sing some really obscure song that... Yeah, uh, the the train wreck moments were when the vocalists would call a tune that were musically really complex. Mm-hmm. Um, like some Billy Joel tunes come to mind, mm-hmm. where there are like six different parts in a song. Yeah. Different feels, different tempos, time changes, all this sort of stuff. And I'd never heard the song before. Right. Um, That was when things occasionally got off the tracks. (laughs) But on the other hand, these people were consummate performers and consummate entertainers. And they would know how to either steer the ship or make a really funny, clever pun about whatever train wreck just happened. And everybody would have a good time and we move on. And everybody would (laughs) clap and think it was all part of the show. So you're probably best known around Kansas City as the drummer for the Barclay Martin Ensemble, mm-hmm. which is uh, still active. Um, and I want to talk to you about uh, being in, a, in an original project like that um, and your experience uh, making a couple records with that band. Mm-hmm. Um, so just give give everybody kind of the overview of, of Barclay first. So Barclay Martin is a singer and songwriter, primarily a guitar player, mm-hmm. though he also plays many other stringed instruments, and a great vocalist and lyricist. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people feel like his music falls sort of in the folk genre, mm-hmm. um, but it encompasses a lot of different things. He's been a prolific writer, so some of his stuff... I would say falls into pop and rock. Some mm-hmm. of it kind of falls into jazz in that there's a lot of improvisation in his music. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little bit of soul and R&B mixed in, a little bit of world music as well. So he's yeah. quite a diverse songwriter. Yeah. So how did how did uh, that sort of spectrum of influences challenge you as a drummer? Um, one of the things that Barkley does that not a lot of other songwriters do, which I love, is that he will write a song for a specific member of his band. Mm -hmm. He will say, gee, I wrote this song for you. Mm -hmm. And it's going to have odd time signatures all over the place. It's going to have a funky backbeat because he knows that's the stuff I love to play. Right, right. Or he'll come and say, hey, you know, Mark Lowry was a piano player with that group, is a piano player with that group. And he'll say, Mark, I wrote this song for you. So it's got, you know, kind of a Cuban feel because that's right up his alley. Right. So suddenly, Barkley writes this tune. We have to, you know, I have to play a genre that I wouldn't typically be super comfortable with 
figure it out, figure out how to play it with multiple other musicians, mm-hmm. and still ultimately make that whole thing support the lyrics and the vocals because mm-hmm. his songwriting is all about the lyrics and the melody. So finding your groove with these other musicians and support the lyrics while it's out of your comfort zone, that just makes you work harder. Yeah. <laughs> so he'll he'll design a song to sort of uh, like feature or please an instrumentalist. Yeah. But it's still a song. Yeah. With amazing lyrics and amazing melody and and you know even even you as kind of the featured guy for that song can't step on what he's doing. Right. Um you made uh, two original records with Barkley? Three. Three. Yeah. Uh, what were they? First one was called Promise on a String. Mm-hmm. Um, that one was just under Barkley Martin as a solo al- uh, solo artist. Mm-hmm. Then Dawn mm-hmm. and Pools That Swell with the Rain. Right. Um, those were both uh, under the moniker of the Barkley Martin Ensemble. Right. And the, the, the latest one, Pools That Swell with the Rain, is, is what I want to talk about. Because the first two were self-produced, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Um, and recorded in Kansas City. Correct. And for Pools That Swell with the Rain, you guys traveled to Nashville mm-hmm. to record in a studio there and actually work with a producer. Yeah. So what was the name of the studio and the producer that you worked with? Um, the name of the studio that we recorded in was called House of David. Mm-hmm. Um, it belonged to the original piano player for Elvis Presley. <laughs> um, it was a an old house, large house, that had been completely renovated into a studio. Mm-hmm. The upstairs was the recording facility, and downstairs was sort of a lounge, as well as a massive reverb chamber, which was cool. <laughs> cool. Um, we worked with a producer named Don Chaffer. Uh-huh. He is also originally from Kansas City, but has lived in Nashville for many years. Um, so, and we worked with an engineer named Greg LaFollette, mm-hmm. also a Kansas City transplant to Nashville. Gotcha. Both incredible musicians in their own rights, um, multi instrumentalists, songwriters. They understand music inside and out. Mm-hmm. So. Don came to Kansas City when we realized we wanted to do this and we determined who we wanted to work with and sort of our approach. Don came to Kansas City and he attended a few rehearsals with us Mm -hmm. as we're prepping for the album. And he took amazing notes. He knew every measure of every song we were going to record. Right. And he started chopping them up. (laughs) And that was the first time I'd ever had that experience. Right. Where someone not in the group said, hey, let's arrange this song a different way. Yeah. This part's not working. This transition isn't quite right. It feels Mm kind of clunky. Let's change it. And Mm -hmm. he would sit there and he would drill us. And he'd say, okay, try it this way. No, that didn't work. Try it this way. That worked. Okay, let's keep that. Right. And that's kind of how it started. So this process started before you even got to Nashville. Yeah. Uh, Was this a, a... frustrating process an enlightening process it was awesome really it was enlightening for sure because i'd never done that um you know the members of the group sort of talked about it before we started and said hey can we let go Mm -hmm. of control of this and Mm -hmm. trust this guy to do this and we all said yeah Mm -hmm. he gets the final word yeah whatever he says is or isn't working we just have to say okay let's do it that way yeah so it's really a relief to just be able to play your instrument mm-hmm. when you're in an original group right. that writes, arranges, and up until this point produces all your own stuff, you have all these 
different facets of music music making you have to keep track of mm-hmm. and to let go of even one of those pieces is really relieving and gives you a lot more freedom mm-hmm. because you can take chances and someone else is listening and they can tell you whether that chance was worth it or not yeah so um Don was really good about that, and he was always very kind. He, you know, it wasn't a thing where we started butting heads or anything. Right. He, we knew he had the best interest of the music at heart, and so we just let him take the reins, and we let go of that, and mm-hmm. we were able to just play. So, from the standpoint of the drums, what were uh, some of the things in terms of your drum parts or the actual drums that you used mm-hmm. that uh, that happened because of Don? Okay. Uh, let we'll talk about parts first yeah. because a lot of that stuff sort of got dissected in that kind of pre-production phase. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say eight out of ten times he would have me simplify my parts. Mm-hmm. Um, he would say, you know, all those ghost notes on the snare don't need to be there. Mm-hmm. You're just taking up space. Right. Um, kick pattern should be super simplified because nobody else is playing that pattern. Even if the bass is playing that pattern, he'd say, okay, you guys both need to simplify because mm. you're getting in the way of the words. Mm. Stuff like that. Yeah. Again, 80% of the time, he would take notes out uh-huh. of the arrangement. Uh-huh. Uh, and that was really important for me. And to be able to hear the difference, you know, because we'd take rough like demo recordings in the rehearsal and say, here's what it sounded like before, here's what it sounded like after, mm-hmm. and say, oh, yeah. That opened the song up a lot. Right. Suddenly the dynamics are way more interesting. Suddenly mm-hmm. the harmonies get way more interesting because I'm not stepping on them. Yeah. Um, that was a huge learning moment on how to stay out of the way. Yeah. So that happened first. Then getting into the studio, um, I knew which drum set I was going to take. Um, I had just recently gotten a Gretsch New Classic Maple kit, mm-hmm. um, which I love and still play it all the time. Mm-hmm. I knew that was going. Um, and then he's like, well, I really want a different option, like a completely different sounding option. Yeah. So um, my cousin is also a great drummer who lives in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And I called him up and said, hey, man, do you have a kit you're not using over this week that I'm going to be in town that I could borrow? It was also a Gretsch kit, but it was an old 70s Gretsch kit with a 20-inch bass drum, bigger toms, thicker snare. Yeah. He also brought in like a Ludwig Black Beauty. Uh, he had a CNC, which is a custom Kansas City drum right. shop right. Uh, snare. I brought a DW snare, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. we had a handful of different sounding snares. Mm-hmm. We had two completely different sounding drum sets. Yeah. And the drum sets were set up in sort of a L shape uh-huh. so that all I had to do was rotate my throne and I could play either kit at any time. Right. And at certain times and certain tracks, we actually sort of choreographed like, here's a two measure break. I'm going to switch drum sets. Wow. And we played it straight through that way. Not like play the part, come back and overdub the other kit, like right. do it live. Right. Right. Cause we wanted that feel mm-hmm. of it really happening. So that was also a learning experience. Like how do I transition from body in a position to body in B position in eight seconds and be ready to groove again? Yeah. So, and not make any noise. Right. (laughs) So that was a fun challenge, but the results were awesome. Um, so are there, are there things that you've kept with you in terms of, uh, you know, instrumentation that you use or the way you construct parts, 
Um, are there are there lessons that you learn from that session that you uh, keep with you in just your average gig, like your average bar gig that you're doing? Yeah, for sure. Um, part of it's just being willing to admit that the kit I want to play isn't right for the band or the room. Mm-hmm. And it's either one of those two things. Mm-hmm. And I say the kit as like an entirety, whether it's the snare drum, the bass drum, the cymbals, right. all those things together or any one of those parts. Mm-hmm. Like Occasionally I'll use a DW bass drum, a big, deep 22-inch DW bass drum with small Gretsch toms mm-hmm. because it lends itself to the music properly. Yeah. So prior to this, I was very much stuck in like, I want to play this kit because it sounds really good. Yeah. Um. But just because it sounds good by itself doesn't mean it sounds good with everything else. Right. Or in the space you're in. Right. So um, that was one of the takeaways yeah. from that session. I think something else drummers get wrapped up in, and maybe not just drummers, probably most instrumentalists, is uh, sort of uh, associating a certain sound with their sound. Mm-hmm. You know, like these cymbals or this snare drum or this brand of drums defines my sound. Yeah. And I'm going to bring my sound to whatever gig I play. Uh, and if it doesn't happen to be right for that gig, I, it's, I don't care. It's my sound. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds like you, you kind of just open yourself up to you know, having having a, a big toolbox to work from instead of just having my sound and bringing that to every gig. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And um, I suppose I have both the benefit and the drawback of not having any sort of sponsorship deal mm-hmm. in that I'm not forced <laughs> to play any brand right. of drum or head or cymbal or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I oftentimes will play two different brands of drums and three different brands of cymbals all mm-hmm. at the same time. And they all get along beautifully. Right. Um, you know, and that corresponds directly with my sound is both the sound of the instrument, but it's also the sound of what you're playing. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people would say it's your style. Right. Um, but your style may not be right for every project you've been hired for. Mm-hmm. So if the job requires me to play less, I'll play less. Yeah. If it requires a quieter kit or lighter cymbals or softer sticks or whatever, that's what's right for the job. Mm-hmm. And in regards to being a working drummer, you need the right tool for the job, mm-hmm. tools, and the right approach stylistically as well. Right. Some people want to hear a lot of notes. Mm-hmm. Some people want a lot of interaction. Some people want you to almost disappear. Hmm. And whatever it is that is going to serve the music or the environment best is the thing you should do. So, speaking of tools and sound, one of the reasons I wanted to interview you is because you are as accomplished as as accomplished an audio engineer as you are a drummer, and I think to you you bring both of those perspectives to every gig that you do. So, uh, what are some basics of of sound and drum miking uh, that you think every drummer should know, whether for live or in the studio? Yeah. Uh, one thing that has taken me a surprisingly long time to come to terms with is that drums that sound good in an acoustic space 
with room to develop across space mm-hmm. are not the same drums that sound good when you put a mic an inch away from them. That's a tough thing to realize. Yeah. Because you can say, man, I really hate the way these drums sound when you're playing them mm-hmm. or when someone else is playing them and you're standing out front. Um, but as soon as you put microphones on them, they sound great through a PA. Mm-hmm. Um, and vice versa. Say, I love the way the, this drum kit sounds when it's all put together because really you're playing a whole bunch of different instruments that all have to get along at the same time. Yeah. Um, and so these sounds all blending in a room sound great together. But when you get a microphone an inch or two away from that drum head, suddenly that's not part of an ensemble anymore. Mm-hmm. It's an individual instrument that's being mic'd and reproduced through a PA. Right. So all that to say, if I had to sort of distill that down into this thing that says this works and this doesn't, mm-hmm. drums that have very pronounced fundamental tones in the toms yeah. and in the cymbals, uh, and typically I would say also have maybe a higher tuning, sound great acoustically, mm-hmm. typically used in like a jazz ensemble, something like that. Right. Um, don't sound good when you get mics right up on them. Mm -hmm. You need to get the mics a little further away. Mm -hmm. Have a bass drum mic a foot away from the bass drum. Mm -hmm. Just use a pair of overheads a couple feet from the cymbals and the toms. That's all you need. Instead of like individual tom mics and a snare mic. Exactly, because that lets everything blend together before it gets to the microphones. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're going to close mic every single tom and snare and bass drum, etc., shorter deeper sounds tend to reproduce better through a PA. Um, it's not the aesthetic that I tend to prefer acoustically. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you go, especially through a larger PA, like in a festival setting or a big stage, something like that, that's getting pumped at super high volumes, right. you want really short sounds that hit, get out of the way quick mm-hmm. and typically staying in the lower registers of what those drums are made to do is going to work better because you're not combating other instruments that take up that upper mid range that drums sometimes like to live in. Mm -hmm. Um, but you're also then staying out of the way of the guitar and keyboards and horns all at the same time that are all battling for that upper mid range spot. Right. Right. What are your, uh, what's your advice about playing acoustically without mics? Because aside from having really good ears behind a mixing board, you just have really good ears in general. And you. you know how to get optimum sounds out of a drum set. Hmm. Thanks. Um, it starts with good tuning. Mm-hmm. And you have to know, again, what you're getting into before you start. Mm-hmm. You have to know the size of your room. You have to know whether it's going to be a really loud room that you've got to overcome or if it's something you need to stay under. Um, and then also how that band plays, you know, mm-hmm. am I going to be a featured performer? Am I going to be background noise, etc. whatever. So tune the drums with that in mind, but then, um, so much of it can come down to technique, mm-hmm. how you hit the drum, where you hit the drum, um, how hard you hit the drum, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I think it's about pulling the sound out of the head Mm -hmm. rather than attacking the head. Mm -hmm. So letting that stick come right off the head with the rebound lets all that sound really come out. Anytime you start digging in, you're muting the drum. Yeah. 
And it's, it's a really hard thing to remember that like, I want to play loud, you know, especially in a loud section of music with a loud band, I want to be able to dig into the drum, Mm -hmm. but I still have to get my stick out of the way and let that drum sing. Yeah. Um, so that's a, it's a delicate balance to strike Mm -hmm. when you're really trying to lay into the drums. And I use that term loosely because you lay into them for a brief moment and then you get out of the way and let the drum do the work. Right. Um, so I hope that answers the question. Yeah, it's kind of a yeah. convoluted concept, but no, it's it it just, I, I, I see, um, a lot of, a lot of drummers who have really beautiful drums and I can tell that they're really great drummers, mm-hmm. but, uh, for whatever reason, they just, they don't sound good. They don't sound professional. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of it, it, like I said, it's not cause they're not good players and it's not cause they don't have good gear. I think it's cause a lot of drummers don't have a really clear understanding of, like you said, how to get a good, full, live sound. Here's an important thing, I think, uh, in regards to that. And it's about tuning. You can't... Anytime your drums are acoustic in a space, they are setting off the room. They're mm-hmm. reverberating off the walls, the ceiling, the floor, etc., the mm-hmm. people. And you can't tune a snare drum the same way for every room. You can't tune a bass drum the same way for every room. So you have to get in the space and you have to hear how your drums interact with the room. Mm -hmm. Um, Some rooms I've found I have a horrible problem with a floor tom when it's low. Mm -hmm. Um, It'll set something off in the room and it'll just cause this big, woofy, muddy sound. So I realize then I have to tune the floor tom up maybe to get out of the way of whatever's resonating. Uh Uh-huh. And that's the key. You find within the sweet spot or within a good range of the tuning of the drums you have, Mm -hmm. what plays nicely in the room you're in, Mm -hmm. but doesn't cause things to over resonate. Mm -hmm. Right. So sometimes that'll cause you to tune a snare drum up way tighter than you typically would because if you're keeping your snare drum low most of the time and you hit it and all of a sudden everything in the room starts buzzing, Right. You have to get it out of the way. Right. And I think that has to do with what you said earlier about kind of shedding a little bit of your ego about like, no, this is the snare sound I like. This is where I like to have it tuned. But if you get in a room and if the snare drum you like doesn't sound good in there, you know, you have to either find a drum or find a tuning that likes that room. Yes. Regardless of what you think of it. Exactly. Tell us about uh, David George and the Crooked Mile. Um, David George is a Kansas City native, also a singer, songwriter, and guitar player. Mm-hmm. He has been involved in a bunch of different rock groups, most of which he has led. Uh, he lived in L.A. for several years. I don't remember the exact time, maybe seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. Returned to Kansas City a few years ago. Um, he was a supporting guitar player for John Fogarty hmm. uh, as in Fogarty's solo act. Right. He toured around with him for a couple of years and he's played with a bunch of other great names. Yeah. He, like Kenny Aronoff and John yeah. Fogarty's band. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, he's shared a bill with Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been on Letterman and Leno and all the great tonight, sh- you know, night shows and all right, that sort right. of stuff. So, very accomplished player. He's been doing it for a long time. Uh, he's a rock and roller, right? Um, he writes 
catchy, I would say technically simple pop rock tunes mm-hmm. that speak deeply to a lot of people. He's found something that resonates with audiences, I think, really well. And he's changed his approach to writing and to playing a lot over time. But something that has been consistent with his songwriting is he knows how to sort of capture uh, an emotion Mm -hmm. and kind of bottle it up and wrap it up in a really nice package. Right. A nice consumable, accessible package. Yeah. 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 And that is something that I think a lot of people... A lot of the bigger market that consumes music is looking for. Yeah. Um, And you guys had a cool kind of uh, honor bestowed on you recently. Uh, I think one of... Is it it called Hey Kansas City? Yeah. Yeah. David George's song, Hey Kansas City, is going to be featured in Arrowhead Stadium as the Chiefs' touchdown song. Yeah. Hopefully we're going to be hearing that often. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was honestly kind of a cool and strange coincidence um the chief's touchdown song had always been gary glitters i think rock and roll part two or number two something like that Mm -hmm. um but they wanted to sort of not involve themselves anymore with gary glitter because he had had some run-ins with the law Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so they were trying to distance themselves from his music and also not send him any royalties (laughs) so uh this year they did a fan vote they selected three different songs to be the official Chiefs touchdown song, uh, Hey Kansas City by David George was one of the three. David George is a local Kansas City artist. Mm-hmm. The other two songs were by major national artists that have like top 40 radio play and mm-hmm. are on major labels and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And we got lucky that the fans voted locally. This is one of the things that I love about Kansas City is because they're, they're so proud of their local scene. They're so... Uh, invested in their local art scene that, that this kind of stuff happens. I remember last year the, the Royals were in the World Series and, and they had the Kansas City Symphony mm-hmm. play the, the the national anthem. Yeah, um, It's just a really, really cool approach that, that Kansas City has to its community and its, its art scene. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing I want to ask you about is uh, being a performer and, and music in general is... Um, just it's just sort of one of the things that you're good at and one of the things that you value. Um, so how do you balance your uh, your musical ambitions with you know just your your ambitions outside of music, whether it's in your personal life or in other kinds of work that you do? It's been a difficult path <laughs> to get to where I am now in that regard. Mm-hmm. There was a period of my life for probably two or three years where I was a full-time performing, gigging, and occasionally teaching musician. Mm -hmm. Uh, Music paid all my bills. And the other stuff I did, audio recording, uh, video production, things like that, I did for fun on the side when it was convenient. Mm -hmm. And I found myself, after a few years of doing that, starting to dread packing my kit up to go to the gig. Mm -hmm. The feeling that I suspect a lot of people who are displeased with their job when they get up on Monday morning and they don't want to get in the car and drive to work, Mm -hmm. I started feeling that way when it was time to go to the gig. 
it music started becoming a real job that I started to not enjoy. Mm-hmm. And I was taking every gig I could that would pay me so that I could pay the bills. Right. Um, which started to mean that artistic projects that pay was maybe speculative or not involved at all, I would have to turn down because mm-hmm. I'd say, sorry, I've got this other gig that's going to pay me and I need to pay the bills. Right. All that combined started to be really frustrating. So I made a decision a couple of years ago that I was going to invest more energy in audio production, video production, that sort of stuff, which I also love doing mm-hmm. um, to pay the bills. Yeah. And that music would be the thing that I do because I love playing music. I never wanted to feel dread towards playing music. Mm-hmm. It was an awful feeling because my whole life prior to this point, it was my outlet. It was my self-expression. Right. It was always a joyous thing. It took a lot of work, but the work was absolutely worth it because of what it gave in return. So I made this decision to pay the bills doing other things that I enjoy that still keep me happy. Mm -hmm. Um, But that allowed me then to only play music that I really loved playing and with people whose company I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And it restored that love for playing for performance and for arranging and recording and everything involved with being a musician. Yeah. And it was an important corner to turn. Um, and it made me a much happier person because of it. Mm -hmm. And you still pay some of the bills with music. I do. It's just, that's not your, that you're not solely dependent on that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, cool, man. Thanks so much for talking with us. Of course. Thank you. There you go. One of my favorite people in KC, Giuliano Mangucci. His wife, Shay, once referred to him as her Swiss army knife because there just doesn't seem to be anything the guy can't do. Uh, And I think anyone who knows him or has worked with him uh, would definitely agree. You can check him out with David George and a Crooked Mile at davidgeorgeband.com and uh, check out the Barkley Martin Ensemble at facebook.com slash barkleymartinmusic. Uh, Barkley Martin is spelled B-A-R-C-L-A-Y-M-A-R-T-I-N, Barkley Martin Music. Uh, And also just Google Barkley, and uh, you'll learn about all the philanthropic work that he does, uh, which Giuliano has had a hand in as well. That album of theirs that we discussed is Pools That Swell With The Rain. That's available on iTunes and Amazon. Uh, Definitely give that a listen, and uh, you can hear all the great drumming that Giuliano did. As, uh, as well as the production aspects that he talked about. Next week's interview belongs to Matt Krause, and in two weeks I'll be bringing you an interview with another Kansas City drummer, John Kizillermut. Uh, we just heard from Giuliano, who is a lifelong Kansas Cityan and uh, a pop rock drummer, uh, but John is a jazz drummer and relatively new to the Kansas City scene, uh, so he'll be offering a different perspective on this very cool city. Don't forget to check out the other podcasts on the Merge Network. Uh, That's the Drummer's Resource Podcast with Nick Ruffini at drummersresource.com and the Daniel Glass Podcast at danielglass.com. And thanks for listening to Working Drummer. See you next time.